Blog Talk Radio. You want to reply the point? Okay. Mr. Wolverine. to reply the point? Okay. Mr. Wawrinka wants to reply the point. 15 on. Replay the point. Today is February 9th, 2017. Pete Zebron of Dennis Ackerman, joined by Barry Buss, author, former UCLA Bruin, college standout, and author of Tennis.Life. Good evening, Barry. Hey, Peter. Good to see you again. Yeah, absolutely. It's been a couple of years since uh, you were uh, on Passing Shots with me, and always a pleasure to talk tennis with me. And uh, right now we're going to... Uh, Dive right in, Barry. Obviously, it's still fresh in our minds a week and a half away, uh, a a week and a half ago, but Roger Federer winning his 18th major at the Australian Open, fifth Australian Open all-time, down 1-3 in the fifth set to take out nemesis Rafael Nadal, a huge win for Fed, uh, has three five-set wins in his seven wins overall in the Australian Open. What's your biggest takeaway from Federer at the 2017 Australian Open, Barry? Wow, yeah, it was uh it was pretty spectacular to watch. Um, you know, I actually had a weird little hunch in a in a kind of a theory that uh played out here that the guys who come back off of the breaks seem to be a little fresher and they seem to come back with a little bit more purpose. If you go back uh Nadal missed all twenty twelve, had a phenomenal twenty thirteen Chilich came off a drug suspension, came back and won the US Open. Serena was out for a year and then came back uh focused and guns are blazing. So I thought Federer, you know, taking six months off like this might just give him a chance to recharge and get healthy and come back and play uh, some pretty inspired tennis. And, and sure enough, there, you know, it played out again. The guys who take a little break come back better. Yeah, he, he had a little bit of struggle. You know, second round, Noah Rubin, the young American, played him pretty well. But um, as things got going, he continued to progress nicely. I like your analogy there with some of the other guys you mentioned, uh, Nadal, and Chilich and even Serena Williams, but absolutely. And let's not forget, you know, the last five majors Federer has played, he did not play the U.S. Open and Roland Garros last year, but the last five he's played, Barry, he's made the semifinals are better. So, I mean, this is not exactly a fluke, if you will, if you're Roger Federer, but at the same point in time, six months off the tour, given where the tour is today and some of the guns that we see out there, the Djokovic's, the Murray's, even Nadal coming back, and, and everyone else in the field. Huge, uh, huge result for Roger Federer. And what I want to dive into right now is really the ability of Ivan Lubicic and, and what he's done for Federer in his game here. I was really impressed a few years ago, Barry, when Lubicic was working with Milos Raonic. In my opinion, he really laid the foundation for Raonic and who he is today. And we look back at some of the coaches that Federer has had, namely Paul Anacone, who obviously worked with Pete Sampras, uh, Stefan Edberg, Tony Roach, who obviously is way too old to play someone like Nadal. But none of these other guys had played Nadal. Lubicic has played him nine times. He won two of those nine matches. But at the same point in time, he was on the other side of the net against Rafael Nadal. And in my opinion, again, given what he did for Milos Raonic laying the foundation, if you will. I think he added some extra ingredients to Federer's game plan, strategy, even belief. Your thoughts on that? Uh, that's interesting. Actually, I wrote a piece uh, on Tennis Live called "The Luby Effect," and uh, mm. wasn't it was a little bit, a little bit tongue in cheek. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, wasn't quite sure of the effect of the uh, celebrity coach or the former star coach on these players. That said. Uh, if you go back and watch the old tape of Luby, he had a phenomenal backhand. I mean, he had a, he had a one-hander from the gods, and he could really rip it. And I thought, for me personally, it's particularly in the finals, that would look like the difference uh, for Federer, that he kept his confidence on the returns. There were very, very little chipping going on. And, you know, he had a couple, just was really able to go over the ball big 
late in the match, you know, the kind of the balls at his rib cage are higher that normally he gets in a little bit of trouble with um, when he's playing his nemesis, Nadal, like that. So that part, I thought, it looked different to me. And, and if you look back at Federer's career here, he is coachable. You know, he certainly, you know, under the tutelage of Edberg, he started coming in a lot more. You know, that was something that Edberg was working hard on him with to get finish the points off a little quicker. Um, so he, he is definitely coachable. And I, there's no doubt about it that that backhand – uh, it held up. You know, he swung out. He didn't get uh, tentative with it in this match. And that's, uh, you know, whether it's, you know, obviously it's Federer, so it's hard to really peel out how much effect a coach really does have because he is so amazing. But back to your other point, certainly, you know, listen, he was in uh, back-to-back Wimbledon finals. He was in uh, U.S. Open finals. Djokovic took him out in four majors, uh, I think, uh, in the last couple of years there. So, yeah, the, the big surprise to me was Nadal going that far because he hasn't gone mm-hmm. that uh, gone a few years, but, um, yeah, but with Lubitsch, I know it's, it's interesting. It certainly, they didn't get off to a great start with the, you know, with the early 2016, you know, Federer struggling and being hurt a little bit. So, uh, it was interesting to see, um, yeah, see this play out. And obviously, you know, everything Lubitsch has touched so far as a coach is, uh, as, uh, he's got the Midas touch right now. So, uh, you can't, you can't say it didn't help. That's for sure. Yeah. Let's, let's do a little bit, of a deeper dive, Barry, on, on that, the, the Luby effect, as you called it in, in the piece you wrote. What else um, What else have you picked up on what Ivan Lubicic has brought to Federer's game in general and more specifically what you saw in Melbourne, uh, you know, the last couple of weeks that, that really, in your opinion, made an impact on Fed's game? Well, I, I just love the way he was taking the return earlier. I just think there was a, there was a part of him that committed to hitting out, and, uh, you know, I really thought – you know, really, that match came down to nerve at the end. I think Nadal got a little tentative. You know, he was up a break in the fifth uh, again. You know, he was there with Djokovic a few years ago also, and uh, he just seemed to get a little bit careful with his shots, and, and Federick was able to continue to, to, to hit out. But it just seemed, I mean, watching him play the whole time, yeah, obviously Ruben gave him some trouble in, in five sets with Nishikori and five with Warinka. So he, you know, he got his legs underneath him, and he was able to stay pretty, um, you know, not, you know, avoid obviously any kind of um, physical distress. So it just seemed to me that he, you know, obviously the work they did in the offseason, he got him in phenomenal shape. There's no question about that because he, he was not, you know, without playing the matches, you know, anything could happen there. Um, but I just, the main thing for me was just the high backhand. That's really where Nidal, you know, that left-handed uh, topspin gets up on him and gets it out wide and they can slide the serve out wide. And he just did not allow himself to get bullied by Nadal this time, which is really was the difference because normally Nadal can kind of push him around a little bit, slide it out wide, the chip comes back, and then, you know, Federer's on the defensive the whole time. And that's not his... Uh, you know, that's not his winning game against him. So it just seemed to me that the higher backhands and the confidence to continue to hit them and where that came from, because that wasn't there, you know, you know, 12 months ago. So, Yeah, and Jared Pine, who I've done the uh, ATP show with on, on passing shots the last couple of years, Barry, uh, I haven't, I didn't see all of Federer's matches at the Australian Open. I saw a handful of them, but Jared saw most of them, and his biggest takeaway was the fact that Federer was hitting so many uh, back ends off the half volley where he crept in where that high bounce was not bothering him, uh, particularly against Nadal uh, in, in the final, obviously. But, um, you know, the, did you did you observe that he has crept in where, uh, again, I didn't really see that many half volleys that Jared did, but obviously he won the match against Nadal. That doesn't always happen every day. And um, was that something that uh, you think might be a Lubitsch effect or a combination of a few things there? Yeah, I think, I think that's fair. I think strategically he, you know, especially in the final, he just, you know, he gets in trouble when he when he plays even, even half a tentative shot. I mean, Nadal just is able to, really get actually gets him in trouble on the forehand side and then is able to, you know, finish him off. So I just noticed that quite a quite a bit, not giving up the baseline. He's got obviously the you know, the the timing from the gods that he can he can support that, but he just he, he never gave up on it. You know, he can do it in stretches, but this time I just never ever saw him get careful. Um, obviously he served beautifully. That's, that that helps too. But but I just noticed yep. the backhand. That, you know, had some stretches there where he missed a few in a row. He just didn't go away from it. He continued to hit it, and even late in the fifth, he you know he had a couple bullet you know from mm. the baseline winners where you know that you just would never have seen it at that kind of a stretch a point in a, in a you know tight important match like that before. So you know I, you know all things considering the you know the, the you know these it takes a team to do these things and the, you know, his videos and the people who, who can, you know, consulted him to take the time off. It was very, very smart. And, um, you know, he came back fresh and he, you know, he had, listen, he had a tough draw 
you know, but also he got yeah. a few breaks. Doesn't hurt to get uh, Nemesis Djokovic out of there. <laughs> you know, not have to go through yeah. him and uh, and Murray not, not uh, being his best either. He makes makes a big made a big difference for him. So. Yeah, and before we get away from Fed, one last uh, takeaway that I have, Barry. Um, you know, 49% uh, breakpoint conversion going into the semifinal against Stan, 48% tournament-wise uh, breakpoint conversion going into the final against Nadal. He started out pretty well there and, you know, got enough breakpoints, obviously, to win the match. But this has been, you know, Federer and Sampras have a parallel here with uh, just absolute horrible breakpoint conversions. I mean, they they would have both done themselves a heck of a lot of favors in their whole career if they were able to convert a smidge more break points, but just they weren't able to. And Federer, you know, almost 50% coming into the final after six matches, remarkable. And, again, he got off to a very good start against Nadal. It got, kind of got away from him, but he converted, obviously, in the fifth set when he needed to. That's, uh, I'm wondering what to make of that because this is something that has stymied him, if you will, throughout his whole career. Any, anything that you may have picked up on, uh, again, he, I think he got off to 0-3 against Noah Rubin in the second round, but he corrected course there. But did you see anything different in Fed's game in Melbourne? Obviously, the fast courts have something to do with it, but anything else that maybe you saw that alluded to the fact that Fed was able to convert more break points this time around? Well, yeah, and no, I think that's actually an excellent point because I think not so much on the you know fifty percent is still you know every other one, but when mm-hmm. players have these terrible stretches, you know when they uh, you know he's had a couple you know the U.S. Open against Djokovic a couple years ago, uh, there was several Frenches with against Nadal where his you know conversion rate mm-hmm. was around twenty. You know even Djokovic last year with Wawrinka, I think he was something like like two out of nineteen or something ridiculous like that. I think once you start losing several of them in a row, you start doubting yourself because you've just lost your your mojo on how to how, you know whether you go for it or just try to get in the point. And I think it feeds off of itself once you start losing a little bit of faith in uh, in your return game on the big points like that. So I think early, you know, obviously in the first couple rounds he was a little bit awkward, but once he got his uh, after the Nishikori match, he, he just seemed to really get his. You know, he was just going for his shots, you know, and not really afraid of, um, you know, it's okay to miss a couple. And the fact that he was making a bunch of them early in these matches got his confidence up. And I just think it allowed him to yep. just kept him free. I think a lot of the things too, when you hear his post-tournament comments, how free he was. I think he was took a little, a lot of pressure off of himself to win. And, and in a certain way, there was, there was a kind of a, you know, he was playing with house money. It seemed like that, like, wow, yeah. I just can't believe I'm doing. But and and you know when you get into that kind of a headspace where you're just not uh, the expectations are dialed back a little bit, you know it's amazing what can what can transpire. And I think uh, I think he got the benefit of you know the perfect storm. And um, you know listen, these tournaments are really really hard to win, and he's been really close for a long time. And you know and guys over 30 don't win majors. It's a real it's a it's a statistical anomaly for a general you know for men to be over 30 to win a major. And uh, it, they're just that's why they're tough to win and there's so few uh, guys who can put a you know a bunch of them together like this so it's uh you know listen the tennis world is a buzz you know these are we learned if we learned anything those two weeks that these are the two most uh popular men's players in, in probable history so it's uh yeah they they really do uh they do you know the, the tv ratings were records and uh you know just the, right. the energy around the tour was just uh was phenomenal you know when these two guys are doing well couldn't agree more, and, and we're going to start off with a general question, Barry, on the guy who was on the other side of the net in the Australian Open men's final, Rafael Nadal, who, again, was pretty much in shutdown mode in autumn last year. You know, he played, you know, some of those 1,000s, but really, in my opinion, really wasn't all there, per se. Um, yet he got all the way to the final, and um, obviously uh, we talked about Federer adding uh, Lubicic to his camp in, in 2016, Early in 2017, uh, another former Roundage coach, Carlos Moya, added to Nadal's camp, and obviously they're both from the same place, Mallorca. Uh, Uncle Tony, you know, we, we hear John McEnroe for the last two years, get a new damn coach. It's like, okay, John, you know, I think Tony and, and Rafa have done quite well for themselves. Maybe an ounce or two of that might be debatable, applicable, uh, et cetera. But uh, Moya, I think, was a good fit for Rafa, given the fact that, number one, he was available. Number two, they're from the same neck of the woods. And we go back to 
the Davis Cup years ago where, uh, you know, Moya pretty much anointed Nadal to play against the United States and Andy Roddick and on clay way back when in uh, right. in that grand stadium in, in Spain to, to play Davis Cup. But um, I think that's a good fit, good camaraderie there. But generally speaking, before we get into some more specifics, your your general thoughts on Nadal's takeaway from the Australian Open 2017? Yeah, no, no, very, very unexpected. Um, you know, I think he came in probably the lowest he's been seated in in, in a long time. And uh, you know, but again, he you know he took the time off at the end of last year. He brought in a new you know a new uh, brought in a new voice, which um, you know it, it, whether. This is where it gets a little bit tricky in tennis because you know there's been this movement in the last four or five years here of bringing in the you know the Beckers and Edbergs and Changs and all these people in the, in the everyone's respective camps and whether it has an effect on Orlando in particular and whether it has any kind of net effect on these players and I think at the end of the day if they think it does it's almost like a placebo effect it's a placebo that works because I mean these guys are such accomplished athletes and stuff but just mentally and 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 uh, emotionally i think when they look up there and they see this 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 person there that they trust and they like and they they have a positive uh experience with and i think it does translate it just it does translate translates into performance and uh, not every time but certainly uh you know with a guy like moya he's it's a fresh voice it's someone he's, he's he trusts he knows he's a former world number one um, you know, even the even the closest relationships can get stale at times, and uh, just you know, just a little bit of inspiration like that, you know. And also for with Nadal, you know, let's, we have to be honest here. He's been, he's lost some very he's gotten tight in matches the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the U.S. Open loss to Pui, and and just a lot of just really really scratchy tennis at important times that you never ever would have imagined from such a mentally tough player. But you know, when he beat Zverev in five, and he got he got going. You know, in the wonderful match against Dimitrov, and he just seemed to really play the big situations, um, you know, like like the old Nadal, and uh, and came through in these tight matches. And once you do that a couple times, all of a sudden you're that old person again. He just needed a, he needed a couple tough wins, and not easy wins, but tough wins. And uh, he was able to get himself going again. And you know, listen, he's got a, you know, he's got a good track record down there. So that's three finals and and a win. And uh, you know, he, he plays well down there. And um, when he's healthy, so it's. Uh, I mean, for me personally, the tour, he, he's always the wild card for the tour. When he's playing well, the tour is electric. And uh, he just brings in an incredibly unique style and personality and just a charisma and energy that you just know, you just, you know, and you really notice it now when he does well, how much more interesting men's tennis is. Nothing against Djokovic and Murray. They're just not as charismatic. You know, they just don't have that panache that Nadal does. And uh, unfortunately, he pulled out of Rotterdam today, so he may have taken a beating right. <laughs> down there. You know, and uh, it's going to be a it's, it's, it's February and they're already pulling out of tournaments. This could be a long year, but um, yeah, it was wonderful to watch him. Uh, you know, just so inspired and uh, you know, and and you know, it hurt. You could tell that one hurt when he lost. It didn't uh, put on a happy face there for everybody, but that was that one meant something to him and it got away from him a little bit. But you know, the tour is better with him uh, in finals. No, I agree, and and you're right. I mean, he was in grave danger against Alexander Zverev, third round, Barry. Uh, You know, he came back from match point down when the two played for the first time last March in Indian Wells. I was at Indian Wells in an adjacent stadium at that time, and I could hear the roars of the crowd, and I was watching on my phone point by point, if you will, and even the people in the stadium, too, that I was uh, watching another match were – more concerned about what was going on on their smartphones with the play-by-play, point-by-point in the other stadium, stadium number one, than what we were watching. And, um, yeah, Zverev uh, will kick himself for that. And, you know, I wrote a preview for the grandstand on that match. I actually picked picked Nadal to win that, given the fact that uh, Zverev, uh, Nadal is still in his head. And that's, you know, exactly what happened uh, when they went five here in, in Melbourne as well. Zverev cramped a little bit. Um just not ready to win that type of match. But you're right, the tournament did come alive. Uh, no disrespect, as you mentioned, to Murray and Djokovic, or even Fed for that matter, but uh, Nadal was alive and well and was a threat. And, um, you know, guaranteed the rest of the field was very well aware of the fact that he was in danger against Verev and was hoping that he would be ousted. And yet they were more aware, Barry, when he came back and won that match, knowing that, uh-oh, Here's another gun here. Here's another major hurdle if we want to try and win this. Um, Rafael Nadal is alive and well in this tournament, and bingo, you're, you're spot on there. So um, I just want to ask you, um, 
it had been a while since Nadal had won a five-set match in a major, uh, quite a while, actually. Uh, how much, in, in your opinion, did this mean to him to come back the way he did against Alexander Zverev, somebody that, um, you know, a young gun who Nadal himself said will win majors? I, I'm in that camp. I think he will. Um, but uh, that was a very very big win for him to continue his momentum as we know Nadal needs matches under his belt to continue to perform well but how big of a win was that in the mind of Rafael Nadal to get through Zverev there yeah no I think that's a that's an excellent point I mean this is where the whole next gen you know that has been knocking at the door for you know I mean this is about the third next gen of generation we've had Mm -hmm. here who keep pushing these guys, but this big four just seems to be able to hold up. And, you know, there was no shortage of people picking Zverev to take Nadal out. You know he heard that. And uh, this kid is the next, uh, there'll be a day when he, when Nadal can no longer beat him. That day is coming in a couple of years, but it's not today. And uh, I think it made a huge, huge deal for him that he not only beat him, but he was down again. He was down two sets to one, and he was able to uh, to rein him in you know, and outlast him and out tough him. And, uh, you know, that just, it just, I just think for even guys like, you know, people who've won 14 grand plan titles, they still, they still have self doubt. They're human, they're playing tennis and, you know, the outcome is uncertain. They, you know, there's doubt and you can only be so confident. And for a guy like Nadal, who's taken a few lumps over the last couple of years physically and letting some matches get away to be able to beat, a, you know, the next, the next great kid, the next great player supposedly. And, uh, in such a in such a fashion that I mean that just got to put some wind to the sails and uh, you know he played superbly throughout the whole event after that and so yeah you know, I think once that match really you know kind of served the served the field notice that hey he's still he's still capable of winning these events and uh, you know you can't um, you know so as a, as an effect for him certainly you know had to had to feel just superb to you know come back like that. Yep, and uh, before we get away from Fed and Nadal and, and into the rest of the big four, Barry, Djokovic, and Murray, I'm going to ask you a point-blank question. You uh, you alluded to the fact that Nadal in, in the last couple of years has not really necessarily had the belief to close out those matches. We did see him will his way, if you will, to, to beat Zverev there in the third round and get all the way to the final. In your opinion, um, and I'm, I'm going to ask you for a percentage, you know, 52, 48, 55, 45, whatever it might be. What do you think happened in the fifth set with Federer and Nadal? Did Federer take that match? Did Nadal, did his disbelief, if you will, creep in? He was up 3-1. Uh, Federer, you know, having trouble with break points, did break Nadal twice. He was down 1-3, won the last five games of the match, broke Nadal twice in the process, did stave off break points on a couple of his service games. Was it more Fed taking it? Was it more Rafa's disbelief creeping in? Combination of both? Where where do you, where do you think in your mind, in your opinion, what what swung the difference there in that in that final? That's, that's an excellent question. I actually was watching it very closely and I just remember there was a rally and I think it was at the three one game. Twenty six twenty six uh, strokes, yeah. Yeah, and that was the first rally where Nadal had a couple forehands and he left them in the middle of the court and he didn't he didn't finish them. And that was the one when I just realized, okay, he's getting he's just starting to go a little short. He wasn't missing. Yeah, where where historically in the last couple of years he's just started missing he'll just start missing forehands out of nowhere. But he didn't miss them, but he left them in the middle of the court and they were balls that he was absolutely pulverizing throughout the match. And that's when I started to see a little bit of tightness creep in. A couple points later, he missed a relatively easy forehand on a big point. And then Federer, you know, listen, Fed served great down the stretch. He just, you know, the aces were coming freely. Um, you know, or if he didn't get an ace, he was gaining a very weak return and able to knock some points off. But obviously the rally you're talking about was one probably the best point they played the whole, you know, the whole tournament. Oh, yeah. It was at a, you know, four, four three, and that was just thrilling. So, um, but I, I thought he got a little bit nervous. That was just just enough to where Fed Fed didn't really change. He stayed the same. But I thought Nadal came off his peak level there, you know, because that was a, he was in a winning position there, and he just seemed to get a little bit conservative, and it cost him, I think. Yep. No, good, great point there. And uh, you know, one one leaving uh, that on a high note. I thought Rafa served incredibly well. He was, uh, you know, 
especially earlier in the tournament, serving at, you know, 70, 80% throughout, very few double faults. So uh, if he continues to serve that well, I mean, let's not forget going back a few years when he was winning majors that nobody thought he was going to win. His service percentage was outstanding. So we're going to leave uh, Rafa and Nadal, uh, Rafa and Fed on a high note there. And Barry, we're going to switch gears. Uh, six-time champion Novak Djokovic crashes out extremely early to Dennis Istomin of all people. Um, this one came out of the blue. I mean, we, we look at Novak Djokovic near the end of last year, obviously disappointments. He won Roland Garros, the very unexpected loss to Query at Wimbledon, the loss to Del Potro, which is okay. I mean, that was a, a hell of a match at, uh, at the Olympics. Got, you know, he won Masters uh, Toronto, uh, got all the way to the U.S. Open final, losing to Stan Wawrinka. Uh, really, in my opinion, I it, I thought he was a shadow of himself in the, in the ATP final against Murray. I, I didn't really recognize Novak Djokovic there. But he did take out uh, Murray in the Doha final, and we're like, okay. We, we flipped the calendar. 2017, Novak Djokovic, Andy Murray final. Uh, Djokovic, number two in the world. He is in the position that Djokovic wants to get back to. Took care of business. Novak Djokovic defeats Andy Murray in the final. Then he loses to Dennis Istomin, where, again, next round Murray goes out, and all of a sudden you're thinking, okay, Djokovic realistically could have been number one if it all fell right for him at the conclusion of the Australian Open. But I don't know. Uh, still a lot of questions. Um, and we're not even talking about Davis Cup. We're going to stick with uh, Australian Open here. Uh, Novak Djokovic losing to Dennis Istomin. Istomin played out of his mind, but at the same point in time, Barry, I still can believe the result. It's shocking. Um, you know, I wish I could have a slump like Djokovic has had since Wimbledon, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, yeah. the standards he's held to are just staggering. I mean, it's it's just a testament to how dominant he's been this decade and where it's just actually unthinkable that he could lose or lose the top ranking. And uh, so, yeah, so he's come down a peg. I mean, he's, he's made no secret about it. There's, there were some family problems going on last yep. Wimbledon. Obviously, something was going on there and that uh, – his aura is like his own personal aura burst for me. He's just not the same person out there. His right. belief in himself is not the same. He knows he did, you know, something happened there that, uh, and he feels very bad about it. And it just, he's searching now, you know, you've got a hug guru, some, some new age guy in Spain to be part of his team. And, and he's just, he's searching for something to kind of, that he's lost. He just doesn't seem like the same person who really truly believes in himself. Cause I think he's done something that, that he doesn't, you know, inherently just, just feels terrible about himself about. And, and it just, it's carrying over to his tennis and, and, uh, Obviously, he's so good, he's going to have his good results. But I think his invincibility, his personal in, internal invincibility has been, has been uh, taking a little hit here. And um, and to be quite frank with you, I, I think he looks too thin to me. I, I've never mm. seen him. He just doesn't seem like his, his ball just doesn't have the same pop on it. Um, you know, guys like Eastman are, 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 you know, controlling rallies against him. And it just doesn't seem like he's dictating like he used to. He's just playing a little bit too careful. I mean, Stan bullied him around in, in New York. Um, you know, Murray is just not, not hurting Murray at all. Murray seemed to be able to out-hit him at the end of the end of last year, um, which is not the case. Um, he looked better down in Doha. There was no question about that. But uh, I just think he, he just doesn't look right to me. He looks a little too thin, and he's lost, and lost a little bit of his mojo. And it uh, doesn't take much. You know, the margins are so small at, that, at right. this level. and. I'm off your perch, just even you know a percent or two. All of a sudden, you're beatable, and a uh, guy plays the match of his life, and and there's your upset, you know. Yeah, great, great point on the the thin margins, and in my opinion, uh, I'm going to take it a little further. In even in the press room, Barry, and you know, Djokovic, unfortunately, and, and it really is uh, unfair, if you will. There are a lot of people flinging arrows at uh, at certain people, certain players, and Djokovic seems to get more shot at him than than others for whatever reason and um you know the old Djokovic if you will who was on top of his game he you know would get a little miffed by that would uh, not be happy with the caliber or uh content of some of the questions and he you know rightfully so he'd let uh, whoever answer, asked that question have it i was amazed uh you know at her, how really carefree he was in the media especially after the loss to Istomin 
it was almost uh, as if things bounced off him. And there were some questions that I thought, you know, the not-so-recent Novak Djokovic would tee off on someone, and he just sort of let it go, shrugged his shoulders, and, uh, you know, moved on, if you will. I So what you, what you said about his aura, something missing, something happened, all the above, um, yeah, the mojo, if you will, uh, either a percentage or a, you know, seemingly large percentage is is, is missing and uh, hopefully he'll be able to correct course because it, it was amazing what he's been able to do for the last three four years um he, he looked like he was going to steamroll his way to uh you know knocking on the door of, of fed's number there with respect to uh all time but uh now it it, it really is all in question at this point yeah no that's very fair and uh you know i wrote a piece about uh a couple of weeks ago, about his end end of his aura of invincibility, and, and, I, and there's a part of me that I just and I feel this, particularly after watching this, the kind of the, the zealotry around who you know the Federer Nadal final, that it just doesn't seem to matter how good he is and how great he's been and how good a guy he is, he's never going to be liked as much as those two guys. And I think there's a part of me that feels that feels like at some point internally, like how much more do I have to do? To, right. to win your respect, you know, and I mean, I don't know if you've seen this or not. The Miami poster that came out for the promoting this year's yes. event. I mean, they've got they've got him at like fifth billing on this thing. <laughs> you know, you, it was like Rafa, it's Fed, it's Serena, it's Murray, and then Djokovic is like fifth fifth billing on this. And there's all this little drama amongst all the fan groups out there. But it's you know, it's funny. I mean, he's only won the event like 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 five of the last six years or something. Uh, right. You know, and they put you know, they're already they're already writing him off. So. You know what more can the guy do? I mean, for me personally, I've been a huge Joker fan from the beginning. You know, from from right from when he started getting hot in 2010, and I've been you know in his camp the whole way. And, and it's hard. You know, it's hard to watch. You know, because I just did. There was you know when he's dialed in, it's just it's a, it's just it's hard. And uh, but yeah, he's he's come down. And you know, but listen, I, the skills are there. He's still in phenomenal shape. And uh, but you know, let's be fair. He he got a little dung up last year. He had his first couple of injuries, the wrist, the shoulder. You know, so he's taken a little right. bit of. The, physic, the physicality, which has always been his wild card, where he just, you know, he seemed to be a little bit more athletic than the other guys, you know, throughout these tournaments. Uh, it's come down a little bit, so he's taken. A, he's got a, he's got a few dings, and uh, you know, he's still 29. He's on the right side of 30, but uh, he's got some question marks. And even his, even some of his commentaries, he's not. You know, it's like I don't. He's not even like I don't really care about winning right now. Right now, I'm just trying to. There's some, there's some there's some storms within here, and I think his his priorities are right now. That doesn't mean they won't swing back, but I don't know if he gets back to that uh, that level of just you know it, where he was just a machine there for about four or five years. You know, it was just from one event to the next to the next, and uh, it just seems right now he's there's some question marks about him going forward and and what he's. Yeah, could couldn't agree more. And it was a special time, and I, I'd like to see you know even. 85, 90% of that Novak Djokovic. I, I hope we can get there or even more uh, to duplicate what we've seen. But I don't know. A lot of questions in, in his head, in, in his camp, in his family, uh, in his fan base as well. So we shall see going forward. Uh, you know, thought that was maybe corrected when he took out Murray, but uh, a lot to be said. And let's not forget Barry again uh, defending the Miami, uh, the Indy Wells Miami yet again. I think he's done that. Three three years in a row now, just incredible with uh, with what he's been able to accomplish. And um, Andy Murray now, um, Barry, I'm going to sort of throw a parallel out here uh, with what Pete Sampras was doing when the the year Pete was going after his sixth consecutive number one ranking, which he was able to accomplish. He he went to Europe late in the year, chasing points. Uh, you know, Marcelo Rios, he was duking it out with him for number one in the world uh, that year. And Pete was able to do that in, in winning some matches and some tournaments in Europe, some very small tournaments. You know, this is a, a time of the year where Pete Sampras used to shut it down, but it was so important for him to try and finish number one. A uh, combination of him winning some matches, Rios conveniently losing, and Pete Sampras did get to number one in the world for the sixth consecutive year. But you know what what, what happened, Barry? Pete Sampras was a no-show the next year at the Australian Open. And, you know, we look at what Andy Murray did here in Australia. Uh, he lost to Misha Zverev, who 
But again, we're going to stick with Australia, but Zverev has had some terrible results since beating Andy Murray. And all of a sudden you wonder, you know, okay, congratulations, Andy Murray. You withstood Novak Djokovic, who was starting to slide a little bit. You played out of your mind the back end of 2016. You did what you needed to, but really, how much has this cost you going forward into 17? We've already seen, I think, how much this may have cost you, but how long will this last? And uh, again, I look at the Sampras parallel there. Granted that next year, Sampras did win 24 consecutive matches in a row. Barry, he did win Wimbledon, but that was his territory. But, you know, the first part of that following year, Pete Sampras's tongue was on the ground, and I think this is what we're seeing in the world of Andy Murray at this point. Yeah, I know it's a classic uh, win the battle, lose the war type of thing yep. here. Yeah, you got you got to wonder. I mean, and, you know, these guys enter these events, and, and these guys assume that they're going to be playing on Sunday, and – you know, the, the opportunity to take the number one ranking, even though he kind of downplayed it uh, with the press, you know, it, it, all of a sudden with Djokovic coming off his peak a little bit, the opportunity was there. The math, the mathematically, yep. he could have reeled them in. If he didn't do it, you know, at the end of last year, he certainly was going to do it in the first couple of months of this year with Djokovic defending uh, Australia, Indian Wells, and Miami. So, uh, yeah, it, it's tough. You know, and watching that match was very complicated. You know, obviously the guy played a different style of play, but, you know, everyone wants to give credit to the serve and volley return here, but let's be fair here. I think Andy Murray lost his serve, I think, eight or nine times to Misha Zarev. Right. So that should tell you what kind of tennis he was playing. Uh, you know, all, all, all power to the serve and volley. It was a nice contrast to watch, but really the, that match came down to Andy Murray not being able to hold serve, and uh, I think he broke him seven or eight times himself. So it wasn't like... You know, it was fair. It was just serving a volume off the court. But, um, yeah, yeah, it's just tough. Listen, it's a long haul. These guys have their little hiccups. Uh, they're all prone to a little bit of letdowns. And, you know, listen, the level of play out there is just phenomenal. And, uh, you know, they're going to they're gonna take some losses. And uh, we've just grown so accustomed to these guys not uh, not giving it up early in majors. And to have, you know, both Djokovic and Murray, who have been in what, played four, four or five Australian finals already, uh, the two of them, or four, I believe, and um, you know, for them to go out early and not uh, not play each other again when they've been so dominant the last uh, few years there, I, it, it is very very shocking. Um, but you know, in, in, a, in another sense, so he gets out early, he gets uh, four or five weeks off, and he'll be good to go, I think, for uh, you know the end of you know end of February here and uh, Indian Wells in Miami. So um, it's tough. These guys, you know, they're, it's how they schedule this, you know, with the Davis Cup in the middle of all this, and right. uh, you know. It's fascinating to me that they're able to keep it together like they do and not uh, have more fall-offs, um, you know, more and more blatant ones. Yeah, so that said, do you, do you think we're going to see the Andy Murray that uh, we come to expect as soon as Indian Wells, or will this take a little bit longer in your mind? No, it, it's interesting with him because every time he made, he you know, he's been up there a few times now where he's had these runs where he gets to two and, and he's winning a couple majors here and there. You know, this is the first time he's gotten to one. It seems to me he doesn't like it up there. He's not comfortable being the, the guy with the, the target on his back. And and for some reason, he's just not – he just doesn't see himself as the best player in the world, even though he, he achieved it this time. Um, right. But it's, 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 me personally, it's a very disappointing result that he didn't uh, he didn't assume the mantle of of the top player in the world. You know, he, he just seemed almost in kind of uh, instinctively didn't he didn't feel worthy of it in, in his psychology. And so it was very shocking to me. He he is more prone to having a little bit of letdowns than the other guys. I think um, you know just emotionally he has these little these little hiccups in uh, in his play. Uh, last year in New Wells in Miami, he did, you know, I think he had, I think it was Del Bonus and and uh, Dimitrov right. took him out. Uh, and relatively early, so obviously he's got a lot to pick up here. Um, but yeah, I, I think he'll get it back. And you know, he's just so solid. I mean, I think these top four guys, and we yep. just have to really, you know, kind of tip our hat, you know, to the end of time here, how phenomenal they are, and, and just their body of work, and just how they've just absolutely made it impossible for that next level of players, the Nishikoris and Raonic's, to break through, and you know, to the elite status of the game. They just you're just not going to get there as long as these guys are healthy and playing. They they're just a little bit better than everybody, and uh, you know, and all the next gen, <laughs> you can keep going next gen, next gen. Yeah, these guys just you know, and they're going to play into their well into their thirties. Not only I don't think anybody's done. I think Federer Federer's right. got a couple more years. Certainly, Djokovic and Murray are going to give a good two, three more years for for sure. And Nadal, you know, this is the best he's looked in a while. So it's. Uh, Will Murray, you know, he's obviously still number one with a lot to gain, so I think he's going to probably stay there. And if Djokovic, you know, doesn't uh, 
get his act together. He's got an awful lot of points coming off, um, you know, yeah. next couple months. So, so I think he'll hold the ranking. Will he, uh, you know, will he will he hold it like Djokovic and Federer and, and Nadal before him? On that, I'm not so sure of. But um, we, you know, time will tell here. Yep, and uh, before we switch over to the women, Barry, uh, sort of a three-headed monster question. Uh, choose uh, whatever order you wish to go in. Uh, answer what you wi- what you will uh, here. Stan Varenka uh, holds three majors, same number as Murray. He is the only man who can complete the career Grand Slam this year if he wins Wimbledon. That's uh, one talking point we can go on. Alexander Zverev, again, the prospect of him you know, how good can he get, how soon? And Milos Raonic, again, um, taking a look at where he is right now. I, I personally, my over-under for Milos in majors one in his career is one and a half. I see that happening at Wimbledon, one or two, uh, maybe in Australian, but I'm sticking with Wimbledon. Uh, why don't you take your pick on any one of those three and answer any or all of uh, those questions? Well, Raonic for me has, uh, you know, he kind of, he has the, he's being trained well. He knows what to say and how to present himself. And there's a a piece on him in the Players' Tribune now where he he talks to his younger self and he's already reached all his, you know, career that he thought of. Um, Yeah, I'm with you on that. I see him picking up one or two there myself. I'm a little concerned about how injury prone he is. You know, he's a big, big guy. You know, he was actually at our club this summer in New York doing a photo shoot. And I mean, you walk by him and it's like, wow, you just don't realize how large a guy he is. So, you know, all the, again, all the big moves and all the fast moving that he's doing, he's got that abductor tendon that seems to be giving him trouble. Um, So I'm a little bit concerned about his shelf life uh, going down the stretch. But listen, he's really, he's learned how to move. You know, he's learned how to move and play from the baseline. And uh, you know when he got when he has that going and is serving well and his net game is going and he seems to always have good people around him. So I, he's you know he's good. Zverev, um, there was a cute piece on him today. He's trying to hire Boris Becker, but he can't afford him. Yeah, uh, I don't know if you saw that. <laughs> so he's. Uh, I saw the so headline. Yeah, out. that's kind of cute. So I think hopefully uh, Becker will give a fellow German a you know a little break here and uh, come down off his rates. I could only imagine. Just could love to hear what those are. Uh, you know, those guys, team, Zarev, Dimitrov, what are we going to do with these guys? You know, they just, nobody, yeah. you know, they're having breakthroughs, they're having breakthrough moments. And I think this is something that's important to kind of distinguish here. They'll have that match where they, they it looks like it's promising team beating Nadal last year, team beating Federer. Uh, and then all of a sudden, they, but they don't have the event. Uh, these guys haven't made any Masters 1000 finals. They haven't made, uh, you know, I think they've got one semi in, in a major between them, a couple maybe. Uh, I think Dimitrov's got two, team has one. But they're just not they're not going deep. You know, they're not putting that that run of a run of wins together that, that kinda of makes their announcement that, hey, this I'm the next guy. And uh and that's what I think we as tennis as a as a industry and as a fan base, we've been we've been waiting for that next guy. And and it's just fascinating to me how this top four just will not allow that. While Rinko right. is that it has been that spotty guy. I mean, if we take his open win last year, he's down match point to Dan Evans, and he right. did not have a top 10 win last year going into the open. Nishikori was his first top 10 win of the year. So somehow he salvaged last year miraculously. Otherwise, he, you know, that's one of the worst careers for a you know, multiple Grand Slam winner in recent memory. So, um, so yeah, he's obviously a wild card. Will he win Wimbledon? No, he's not. He's not. A, he's not athletic enough to win on the grass. I don't think that's not his thing. He's a, he's a crazy. He needs good footing underneath him. Um, so yeah, those three guys are, are fascinating team is struggling right now. He lost first round of Sophia and right. he's got a whole bunch of defense. He'll be out of the top 10 by the end of February. And, uh, yeah, it's, um, there's a lot of players out there. Del Potro coming back. And then it's just, you know, the whole group of guys, the Sangas, Monfils, Nishikori's, Chilich's that are just, you know, they're always around and, uh, and dangerous. So it's going to be, uh, should be a really fascinating next, next few months here. Yeah, and uh, I, before we go to the women, I'll just throw my uh, rebuttal, if you will, to the uh, Canadians that like to kick up their heels and, and talk about Milos uh, possibly being number one in the world or even winning multiple majors. And I'll say, you know, I, 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 I'm I a big Milos Roundage fan, but I'll, I'll say I, I utter the word or the name Goran Ivanisevich, and some of the people get it and some people don't. I say, you know, you remember how good Goran was and – Sometimes I get nodding of the heads, and sometimes I get a glazed look, and I'll say, 
as great as Goran Ivanisevic was, he won exactly one major, and that was at the tail end of his career. So if you start talking about Milos being number one, he's a big guy. As you mentioned, Barry, the injury status, uh, a big guy winning seven best of fives in a row consecutively. Oh, that's a big, tough ask. And, again, facts are there. You know, Goran at the very end, uh, fortunate to win that he did. So as much as I'd like to see Milos win, I'm sticking with the 1.5 uh, over under for majors and uh, love to see him have a great healthy career and, and win multiples. But uh, boy, that's a tough ask. I'll, I'll say. Yeah. I mean, listen, he's trying, you know, he's in the peak of the, the big four, you know, he's 25. These guys are going to be around for two or three more years. So it's just, uh, you know, it's now he's looking at 27, 28. He may sneak one in the next couple of years, but then at that point, you know, there's going to be another crew of young guys up again. So uh, it's a yep. tough ask. And I think something happens to these guys too when they when they don't break through, you know, when they're out knocking on the door, knocking on the door, you just start thinking right. that, you know, that door is going to door shut for, for you. And uh, I think it happened to Dimitrov. He got very, very close a couple of years ago and just realized I'm, I, I can't beat these guys in a three out of five, you know, major match. And uh, though Ronich has put a few together, taking out Fed at Wimbledon last year was a big deal. Uh, I just think, you know, as you said, I think 1.5 is a pretty fair number. Yeah. Yep. And um, I'm a guest uh, every once in a while, uh, about 20, 25 times now, Barry, since last Roland Garros on uh, Talk Sport, a, a, a London talk radio station. And I was asked early on in the Australian Open what I thought, you know, who the women's favorites would be. And I would say, you know, I, I'd say Serena Williams, probably I'd say one or two majors this year. And I, I kind of got a really like, uh, you know, really, you think that? And I said, well, absolutely. You know, I the women's game, in my opinion, is still there for the taking. She's a, a true champion, and she made it happen. In my opinion, Barry, once she won her quarterfinal match and she realized that Lucic Baroni had taken out Pliskova, she was walking down that uh, hallway, and, and she just had the biggest gleam in her eye and biggest smile and saying she feels great. In my opinion, she felt like she won the Australian Open after winning her quarterfinal match, knowing that she'd have Lucic Baroni in the semifinals and uh, uh, possibly her sister that she's really owned really in the last five years uh, in the final, uh, or Vandeweghe, if you will. But um, all credit, Serena Williams winning number 23, um, just stayed the course, played excellent tennis throughout. I saw a handful of her matches uh, in the Australian Open this year, but just way too good for the rest of the field, in my opinion. Yeah, no, no. It, it's uh, it's fascinating when you look at the women, uh, just the last decade, really, the women's, I think, post-Justine mm-hmm. post Hennon, they're just, it's just been these incomplete careers, one after yeah. another after another. Sit here and talk the rest of the hour here on just. I mean, now we got Kerber who makes her sense number one and picks up huh. a couple of majors, and then she just just completely disappeared this January. She she had a terrible terrible start to the year. So uh, I don't know if they if it's too many too many te- too much tennis for them um, or just the success burns them out. But I mean, you can go right down the list here. We got Halep. We've got so many players here in the last few years that just make these moves and then fall off. And uh, yeah. you know and I, as a rank, they'll be back, and that should give Serena some trouble. But listen, Serena healthy. You know, she complained last year. Not complained, but she, you know, she noted. Listen, she hasn't, she hasn't been healthy. You know, and uh, you know, she's right. 35, and there's no, there's no change in that. It's got nothing to do with training and so forth. She's just at an age now where she's got a bunch of nagging stuff going on. It's just not all that fun to go out and around. You know, to do this when she's hurting. So she hasn't been her, been her best self or consistent self the last couple of years. Then again, she's still, you know, pulling a major to you know a season. So. Um, she is, you know, listen, Serena healthy is, is about a, is a pretty safe bet and, and is about as safe a bet there is in tennis right now. And, uh, you know, let's just see how she handles the next uh, couple months here without any majors, you know, coming up till May. Uh, you know, it'll be interesting to see what her motivation is, uh, having passed Groff's record and, uh, what is she, what is, what is going to motivate her to get up in the morning and, uh, you know, and then go, you know, continue to do the work, you know, that she does. Yep, and I want to ask you, uh, put your coaching cap on right now. Coco Vandeweghe, interesting story. We're all aware of her, you know, the last few years here in the U.S. I mean, she hits a very heavy ball. I mean, 
I, I saw her play in the 75K Challenger in Phoenix in November of 12, Barry, and she uncorked a, a forehand from behind the baseline, you know, up three-quarters of the back fence. Looked like she hit a double off the green monster at Fenway Park. I mean, she just unloaded right. on the ball, you know, and um, – you know, got to the got to the semis here, working with Craig Carden, which is a plus. Uh, Want to ask you what that means to her game and concurrent question. Obviously, she's been partnering with Martina Hingis and uh, Karen Helf, who I do a show with on on Replay the Point. Also, is is really diving deeper into uh, looking at players that have partnered with Martina Hingis playing doubles and what that has translated into their singles game. She feels that that had an immediate effect and impact on Coco Vandeweghe. I, I buy into that as well, but um, I think more so working with Craig Carden. I, I, I just want to get your opinion on what's been working for Coco in her game, the combination of both of these things, and, and what do you see that it has really been able to help her get to a major semifinal and maybe what she can do going forward? Well, it's funny you mentioned uh, a few years back, I saw her play world team tennis down in Orange County and she was spiking rackets and uh, just carrying on. So I think Yannick put her on notice that they're finding her now when she breaks rackets and, uh, or they were going to dump her entirely. So it just seems to me she's in, she seems emotionally in a better place out there. I mean, she, she had a tendency to get a little, uh, little feisty out there and uh, really kind of turn on herself. And I just seemed to emotionally and mentally, she just seemed uh, a different player. And she, she toughed out a couple tough matches early in that tournament that were really impressive, yeah. you know, or not lose her nerve. I think it was Bouchard. She played in a tough three setter and she's yep. got, listen, she's got big, big, big shots. I mean, both wings and her serve. And, uh, you know, she's making her shots. She doesn't have to make too many to win a point. I mean, there's, there's, it's not that easy. She can take the racket out of your hand really quickly. And uh, so, obviously, when she's confident, um, you know, she's going to be there. Now, did she get out of her comfort zone? I mean, she's in the third set with, with Venus Williams to a chance to go to a major. And, you know, she went back. She went away. And that was a very disappointing right. um, effort. She just didn't even find a way to fight. She couldn't hit two balls in a row on the court. So, that was probably a little bit out of her comfort zone and I think she needs to, to be able to, you know, hopefully learn from that. And that was an experience. That was an opportunity uh, that not players in her, of her level don't get that often. Um, you know, she's not going to be a habitual semifinalist in a major. And uh, so obviously I just think emotionally she seems better. I mean, just when I read her uh, commentaries to the press, she seems happier. She seems more, just more comfortable in her skin, I think. And that's really important out there. She's a, she's a professional tennis player and she believes in herself. And Craig has had a great run, great success obviously with Navratilova in the past and all the work he's done with other players. And uh, so he has a tremendous track record of uh, getting these gals to believe in themselves. And uh, it just seems that she's playing from a, just a healthier place. She looks better out there that, you know, in, in a happier place. Yep. And uh, before we get to Davis cup, I want to talk about one more WTA player, uh, Barry uh, Pliskova, who obviously got to the U S open final losing to Kerber, uh, some pretty big WTA writers, supporters, uh, WTA bandwagon folks had Pliskova winning the Australian Open, and um, she won four matches. So she came up three matches short of winning that uh, that so many people had penciled in. That said, she did. You know, she hit 19 aces in one of those matches, and that that's a hell of a lot of aces in a women's match. And so. Uh, I think she's got the potential, given what she did the back end of last year. And, again, a lot of people thinking or believing or willing or wanting her to win the Australian Open didn't happen. She just got over 50% of the matches needed to win that Australian Open. But what do you see in Pliskova as a WTA player? And does she have a major in her this year or in the next couple of years or at all? I think so. I think so. I was actually at the Open last year where she beat Serena. Um, she held her nerve phenomenally well. I mean, that crowd was really against her, and it was a tough tiebreaker in the second set, and she just uh, she defended really well. I was really impressed. I mean, she yeah. served beautifully. She big off both wings, but, you know, Serena was – cranking the balls in the corners and she was she was hanging she was getting herself out of trouble repeatedly that, that really impressed me uh obviously she was up a break in the third and against Kerber you know and uh and just let that final get away from her a little bit but yeah. you know I think she's got enough you know it's it's tough I mean it, it, the margins aren't there so if she has any kind of a 30 minute hiccup she's in a little bit of trouble you know she's very flat up both sides and uh and it just that's always going to be a little bit of a concern in in the tight moments you know when it uh you just want to have a little bit of safety there to end your shots and and uh so she's going to really you know she got to hit her way 
to victory and serve her way to victory. And, uh, you know, that's just not that easy to pull off. And, you know, when, when you get out, when you get right up against, uh, you know, that moment of winning a major, but then that again, you know, listen, I, she's, she's had a super, you know, when she's on, she's, she can put it together for, for weeks at a time. And, uh, you know, the end of last, you know, best last summer and, uh, at the end of last year, she was very good. And, yeah. um, you know, look surprising to see her go out, but no, I think she's probably, you know, she's going to be a threat. I mean, she's not, uh, you know, when you can serve like that in the women's game, that's a lot of easy points, and that makes a huge, huge difference. You know, she's not having to grind every point. Um, you know, that just takes a little bit of the, the mental pressure off and the physical, you know, uh, stress that some of the other girls at Kerber right. have just got to work so hard to get anything um, and stuff. So, no, I'm, I'm high. I'm long on her. I think she'll have a very, very good year. She seems pretty mature out there and uh, very unflappable, which I think is good. She's got a real good uh, head on her shoulders, and, you know, that goes a long way. Good, good. No, I appreciate that. And Barry, you were uh, a, a Junior Davis Cup uh, USA uh, representative uh, way back when, and so obviously you, you've got a vested interest in, in Davis Cup. I do as well. And uh, nice to see the Americans getting off to a good start in Birmingham, Alabama. Granted, they played a very depleted Swiss team, uh, whitewashed them as, as we expected. Probably the biggest surprise there, John Isner actually lost a set, but uh, – didn't no damage there. They they got the job done. They're going to travel. You know, we've got eight teams left, and six are six are European teams, and all the European teams are playing in Europe. And meanwhile, the U.S. goes all the way to Australia in April. Uh, tough tough match. You know, Kyrgios will be there most likely. Tomic possibly. Jordan Thompson doing some good things in Australia. They've got a formidable doubles pair as well. But. Um, you know, could this be the year that U.S. Uh, is able to sneak one through in Australia and get uh, get to the semifinals and possibly have a chance? Because, uh, you know, looking at this, the winner of U.S.-Australia is going to play the winner of Italy and Belgium. Very winnable uh, semifinal should they be able to get in that position. No, no, it's uh... – this is a perfect example of what uh, everybody who cares about tennis and Davis Cup as an event have just been pulling their hair out. I mean, you had, what, one of the top 14 players in the world playing yeah. in the, this first round, uh, the Djokovic, of all people. Um, you got a Swiss <laughs> team coming up here without without Federer and Wawrinka. I mean, come on. I mean, I feel terrible for the promoter who probably thought he had a, mm-hmm. hit, a hit a home run when, he, when the Swiss, Swiss team was coming over and then nobody wants to play. You know what it seems to be turning into, Pete? It's turning into a bucket list for all these professional mm-hmm. tennis players. They win once and then, then they can, you know, they can, yeah. they can just check it off. I won the Davis cup. You got Murray, you got, you got obviously Nadal's won a few, uh, you know, Djokovic, you got Stan and fed got together and figured it out. Um, mm-hmm. So that part, it, it's disappointing. Cause it, I, I think that, I mean, the potential for this event, if they did it more of like a Ryder cup thing where they dialed it back and did it every other year, you know, I, I mean, it's the argument that they, you know, the post-U.S. Open scheduling, you know, from basically September through the end of the year, how they cannot figure out a way to make the Davis Cup an international event and have a host country and, and uh, you know, and just run this thing for about three, four weeks and just do it right. And uh, same thing with the Fed Cup. Put it, you know, have a host country and do it, do it right. Um, you know, it's just very frustrating. And, you know, as you mentioned a second ago, now that our guys have got to literally – go back, you know, they're in the middle of the Europe swing and then they got to shoot all the way down to Australia. I mean, it's just, it's, and go play, go play on a hardcore, right? I mean, it's just right. it's crazy. Yeah. You know, I just, uh, you know, how these guys do this, you know, it's fascinating to me that their bodies and their whole, the whole, you know, internal clocks just don't, don't, you know, seize at some point, but, uh, that's going to be a, you know, obviously a thrilling match and, you know, obviously Kiro's Tomic are, are fascinating and he with the coach and courier and, and the whole gang. So I think our guys will be ready. I think it's a huge opportunity to, uh, you know, put a little, uh, you know, make them have a, have a new team. The Bryans have stepped down. So it's up to the, the younger guns now. And, uh, yeah, this is a good chance, and they can they can go down to Australia and, and pull one out. They'll have a lot of confidence, and they could they could find they could see themselves in their first uh, Davis Cup final. Yeah, I, I liked what you said about a bucket list. It's almost like a you know a pretty good premier athlete in whatever sport who uh, you know he's played for five or six years, and he go gets to a team and he wins a championship, and it's like okay, you know I, I've got one. Uh, anything else is gravy train right now, and I, I agree with you. I think that's how most of these guys are looking at it. But that said, uh, Barry, we've got a potential for a uh, well. We've got Spain going to Serbia. Um, we could have Djokovic and Nadal. I, I honestly, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if we go over two of those guys. 
Uh, one for two is a possibility. I mean, Djokovic would love to play in Serbia, but, you know, w- these guys are getting up there in age. I can see Rafa bowing out. I I do not see Novak Djokovic playing Rafael Nadal in Davis Cup in April. I, I, I'd love to see it. I would kill to see it. I just don't think we'll see it, and I think there's a possibility we won't see either guy. How about your thoughts on that? And, I mean, my question is, have any, I mean, it's fascinating how often these guys have played each other. Have they ever played each other in Davis Cup? And I don't think they have. I don't believe I don't they have, no. Yeah, and, yeah, I mean, how exciting would that be? You want to talk about pressure and, and a fifth match, right. and three out of five, uh, and on a home court. <laughs> I mean, that's, you know, that, that would be uh, that would be heaven. That would be more exciting than a major final, really. I mean, it would be something yeah. really unique. Um, yeah, it's just, uh, it's disappointing. And my understanding of the system and the way it's set up now is that the lower countries are, you know, they have a lot of, a lot of power to, to block restructuring of this and the scheduling is very complicated. And, you know, some of the lower, you know, zone B and zone C countries, uh, the lower, the lower level ones, they get a lot of revenue from this, you know, from the Davis cup and it sustains them. So there's gotta be a way to redo it, um, that you get all the best players in the world playing. Um, it, it's just what it should be. I mean, watching Raonic partying down at the Super Bowl while Canada's rolling Shapovalov <laughs> out there. In five. I mean, come on, you got to be kidding me. How can you not, as yeah. a Canadian, how could that not bother you? You know, Raonic included. Right. I mean, you just let you let your country down. You know, and yep. uh, you redo your schedule, man. You know, it doesn't. Uh, this is it's a it's not a big ask. I mean, I know it's you know these yeah. guys are they're only put tennis, but it's not it's not a big ask to do this a couple times a year. You know, if you make it to the finals, you know, so be it. But you know, but look, listen, Murray. You know, we were we were talking about Murray playing a lot of tennis. I mean, that five setter with Del Potro last year that could not have helped anything. Um, right after the Open, I mean, you know, that was just a lot. It's, it is a lot of ball. You know, so it's easy to sit here on the sidelines and critique them for not, uh, you know, throwing their hat in the ring every time that their country plays. But you know, obviously, you know, it's just part of their schedule. It's not. It can't be the priority of their schedule. Yep, and uh, we're wrapping up here, Barry, but, uh, again, uh, three-part question, if you will. Uh, answer what you wish. Uh, interesting, Great Britain going to France. Will Murray play? Obviously, f- doesn't matter who the French roll out. I mean, they've got Gasquet, Simone, Monfils, Sanga, great, uh, you know, Mahou, Bear, and doubles. That They're they're just stocked right there. Um, Argentina, Champions last year, Barry. They won all four ties on the road. They they host this year, and Fognini comes from two sets to love down to, to beat them in the fifth rubber there. And then um, Shapovalov, obviously, an unfortunate situation there. Uh, any of those things that you want to delve into? Any, none, or all? Well, I wrote quite a bit about the Shapovalov situation there and uh, how, do, how is tennis, you know, it seemed to – the prevailing opinion of the tennis people I spoke to is that he got off a little bit easy there in that unfortunate uh, ending there. And, and uh, he, needs a, he needs a clinic on how to bash a ball or fire a ball in, in a safer <laughs> way. But, um, you know, what do you, what do you do there? Did he cross the line? You know, obviously this gentleman got hurt and uh, it, it seemed to be a little bit of an issue there, but uh, seemed to get off a little bit easy, but uh, we'll see how that plays out. Yeah. It's disappointing. You know, Argentina goes down there and Del Potro's, you know, he's on the bench. I mean, you know, it's, uh, you got to wonder, you know, these guys go all the, they go the distance. He checked it off the box last year and check it off the list. And uh, you know, then he's going to sit this one out and they're down in the first round. So what, I mean, it's questionable to me how it has to mean more to these guys, you know, I, I, it's got to bother them to see their country go out in the first round. Um, you know, and uh, you know, full credit to the checks and Burdich and those guys who play every, every tie and those guys don't, uh, right. they don't back off, um, you know, in the fed cup and the Czech Czech Republic, same thing. They've been really, really, you know, committed and so forth, but um, yeah, it's uh, it's just it's just, it's a tricky thing. I think the last thing I heard was uh, Murray's going to play. So you know, listen, when one of the top four guys is playing in the, mm-hmm. uh, for your team, they're a really formidable. You know, that's a, that's a formidable team. That's two or two to three points that you're going to be involved in, and uh, so it can sure. make all the difference. Well, I couldn't agree more. And uh, you know, before we wrap up, Barry, anything else that you'd like to talk about uh, that we didn't touch on? Australian Open. Uh, men's, women's, Davis Cup, or uh, you know, looking uh, ahead at the at the schedule going forward in uh, in February here. Oh, just a little bit of concern. I mean, a lot of people pulling out. I think the uh, the women are down in the Middle East here, and I think three of the seeds pulled out is the last day in Kuznetsov. We have an aging aging professional tennis class. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, you know, obviously Ro- Ro- uh, Nadal pulling out of Rotterdam today, and uh, you know, Fed just these guys are really backing their schedules off a little bit. 
So, you know, it's got to be a little bit of concern if I'm a promoter out there. There's a lot of events, and, and uh, you know, you, you market around these guys, and, uh, you know, when they can't make it, it it's got to hurt a little bit. So it's tough. You know, there was a tournament in Ecuador this week. The first round, there wasn't a single person in the stands, and, and you feel for, the, for these tours. You know, there's, there's a lot of money going into these events, and uh, right. you got to hope that they're going to be able to survive. Because obviously tennis is, you know, tennis is in a really peculiar spot here. And when the top four guys and Serena, and obviously Sharapova is coming back, but she's at the tail end of her career too. And uh, these are really the marquee names. And will will the tennis fan base stay on when these people move on? And I'm not so sure they do. You know, I don't think they follow. You know, the passion that they have for tennis now is very predicated on these top guys performing and performing well. And when they when they pull back, I have a feeling there's going to be a recession in tennis and uh you know we got to hope that we're there to to you know support the game while the next uh, the next great one emerges you know it's going to be it's going to be a little bit of a tricky time i believe yeah i completely agree and um just uh taking it down a peg barry I, i'm i'm pleased to let you know that this weekend i'm going to be at qualifying for a brand new 75k men's challenger in tempe arizona played on uh, at the whiteman tennis center Campus of Arizona State University, uh, you've played some matches there in your collegiate career. And um, Michael Moe, Ernesto Escobedo, a couple of young Americans are going to be in action. Uh, some veterans, Marinko Matosevic, uh, Tamaras Gebeshvili, Alejandro Faya in the main draw. Uh, nice to be able to have that. Uh, concurrently, we've got a 25K women's event in Surprise, Arizona that, uh, you know, it's been there for five or six years. So amazing that uh, we've got uh, two concurrent challengers here, you know, within 30 minutes of each other. But um, looking forward to uh, being able to cover that tournament uh, as early as a couple days from now. And, you know, on our next show, look forward to talking about uh, my observations from the 75K challenger. So on behalf of Barry Buss, this is Pete Zebron saying good night. We'll catch you next time on Replay the Point. Good night.